Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. It is so great to have you all tuned in today, and I am super excited about our guest. Today, we have Josh Clark. He's one of my favorite podcasting geniuses. Uh, Some of you may have heard his podcast, Stuff You Should Know. Um, It's on the iHeartMedia network and so many others, iTunes, Spotify, you name it. Um, But he's got a new podcast series out called The End of the World with Josh Clark, and it was one of the best podcasts of 2018. It's brand new. It's totally awesome. And I am so excited to have you on the show, Josh. Welcome to Go Green Radio. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. You bet. Well, full disclosure to you and to my listeners, I am a big fan. So I hope that my (laughs) listeners, if they have not already checked out your podcast, that they will right after they finish listening to us today. So let's talk about your newest podcast series, which is The End of the World with Josh Clark. What is the underlying theme of the 10-episode series? Uh, so the, the theme of the end of the world is, is about what are called existential risks, which are pretty much what they sound like. They're, they're threat to human existence. And uh, they're different than the, the kind of risks and threats that we've come up against thus far in the history of the human race because up to this point, every other threat we've, we've come across, especially ones that we've made ourselves, um, haven't had the goods to actually wipe out all of the human race, right? There's always been this chance that um, as, as catastrophic as something might be, there will probably be enough humans left alive to rebuild over, you know, some period of time, right? Mm-hmm. With existential risk, that's not the case. They remove the chance of us rebuilding. Either they knock us so far out of our place in history that we never have a chance of getting back to it. Or more likely, they just wipe out every human alive. There's just no more humans. So the difference between like an existential risk and a regular risk is that existential risks permanently remove the possibility of any future for humankind from that point on. And they're based, like I said, they're basically new. So the, the point of the series is to say, hey, everybody, there's such a thing as existential risk. And if you start to kind of delve into the science and listen to some very smart people who are raising alarms about this, there seem to be some coming our way. And if we don't do anything about it, then there probably won't be any human beings on Earth 100 or 200 or maybe 300 or so years from now because we will have accidentally wiped ourselves out uh, in the meantime. And that's, that's the point. It's, it's, I spent a lot of time um, making it as palatable as possible, researching everything as deeply as I possibly could so that I don't just sound like a crackpot, you know? Um, <laughs> and then I also worked with a, a couple of really talented people um, uh, the, uh, a guy named Kevin Senzaki did sound design and, uh, Point Lobo, um, was the composer who made a beautiful score. And, um, it, the three of us, and actually my wife actually helped me out quite a bit too, because, you know, we worked together from home and she, uh, she was a great sounding board for me. So I guess you'd say the four of us working together kind of put this series out and uh, I'm pretty proud of what, what came out as a result. You should be Josh. It really is. Amazing. And, and it's one of the things, like you said, it is very palatable. I mean, at the, at the outset, when you think about existential risks and you think about these threats that are, you know, and there are several of them coming at us at the same time, 
it can seem mm-hmm. overwhelming. But one of the things I love about each of your you know, shows in the series is that you talk about what we might think about doing in order to address these existential threats. And so I think that's the, the takeaway that, that I got from each series was that, okay, this isn't hopeless, not by any means. If we're smart enough to mm-hmm. get ourselves into this, we're smart enough to get ourselves out of it if we plan and if we collaborate. And I love the very specific ways that you talk about um, that the human beings can do that. Episode four was one of the most organic hooks, I think, for Go Green radio listeners that they might, you know, not necessarily start with. I mean, I say start at the beginning and work your way through all 10. But, um, but it's one of the ones where I found a, a really natural hook to some of the things we talk about on Go Green Radio. Um, that was an episode mm-hmm. on natural risks. And one of the things you talked about towards the end of that episode was runaway greenhouse gas, uh, greenhouse effect. And so mm-hmm. I, I'd love to give you a chance to talk about that, but, but not just that piece of the episode, that whole episode in general about natural risks to our, our existential, you know, lives and, and well-being. Mm-hmm. So, so the uh, the thing that makes these existential risks that are starting to come down the pike that are looming on on humanity's horizon is that you know they're taking the form of some of the very powerful technology we're starting to develop, like artificial intelligence and nanotechnology, things that if, if done right can provide an amazing future for humanity. But we have to figure out how to how to survive mastering them first, basically. Um, but they're not the only existential risks that we live under. We, as a species, ever since the, the first human was born, um, we've lived under threats of some existential risks, and they're natural risks, like things that are things that could happen to Earth that are so massive and so catastrophic they could just wipe humanity out of existence. Um, a really uh, an obvious one I think a lot of people think of, and I really kind of um, described in detail in, in that episode you're talking about was a an asteroid or, or something like that that could that would be big enough to impact Earth that it could just wipe out virtually all life, like it did about 66 million years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. It came fairly close. I think like three-quarters of all species uh, were killed off in that impact and, and the resulting uh, effects of it. Um, and that's a lot of species. And it's not mm-hmm. like the, the, the 25% of species left alive were doing fine, you know, looking around wondering what everyone was complaining about. Like it was a really, really bad period on Earth and life just barely hung on. But that's actually something um, to kind of to get, get away from your question just for a second. Sure. Something that really stuck out to me through researching this that I think gave the series that hopefulness that you're talking about and certainly gave me hope is that life itself, life, if you look at it as like a thing, like it's its own thing and we're a, we're a part of life and we're part of this larger community of life and we share in common the fact that we're alive with all living things. Um, it's really, really tough to kill. Earth has been through five mass extinctions so far that we know of. And in some of those cases, life was just hanging on by a thread. But it, it did hang on. And after a while, after things settled down, it kind of re, it regained its footing. It, it spread out again. It, it grew. It, it, it became diverse. And, and it thrived. And then another mass extinction happened and nearly wiped it out. And it was it contracted again and then expanded and it keeps doing this. So I found it really heartening through my research to see like, even if humanity accidentally wipes ourselves out, life will 
almost certainly still go on. And, and I found that really, really heartening. Um, but in the episode you're talking about in particular, the, the natural risks episode, in addition to the asteroid, um, one of the things I came across that I hadn't really heard of before that you mentioned is a runaway greenhouse effect. And it's terrifying, actually. Like yeah. the greenhouse effect is, is kind of unnerving in and of itself. The idea that, you know, us burning fossil fuels for the last, you know, 170 so years has really altered the global climate by altering the global atmosphere. Um, that's, that's unnerving in and of itself. The, the thing that makes runaway greenhouse effects um, terrifying is that there appears to be a point of no return to where if that continued to enough of a degree where we really messed with the atmosphere or, any, or something, something happened that really altered the atmosphere and the uh, Earth's ability to um, get rid of heat, uh, it could be trapped into a greenhouse effect that just, kept self-perpetuating and getting worse and worse and worse. And eventually it would get so hot that the oceans would boil off and that would actually make the greenhouse effect worse and worse because the water vapor that, that uh, used to be ocean would find its place in the atmosphere and it would just keep that heat trapped even more. And then eventually all life on Earth would be totally cooked off of the planet um, in this incredible, incredibly hot blanket of heat that surrounded the Earth. And... Um, some studies have shown that even if we suddenly dug up every bit of fossil fuel available on Earth and burned it all at once, it still most likely wouldn't be able to trigger a runaway greenhouse effect. But mm -hmm. other studies have pointed out that, yeah, that's, that's based on our current understanding of atmospheric dynamics, and mm -hmm. that is admittedly pretty weak at this point. We really don't know exactly how the atmosphere works. So, yeah, under current science, that couldn't happen. Uh, potentially under future science, it, it could. And it's one of those things where, to me, when you hear about things like climate change and the greenhouse effect, and I think I'm like a lot of people, maybe even some of your listeners, it's important, but it also seems kind of remote and distant. But then when you learn about something like a runaway greenhouse effect, like, whoa, 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 there's a point of no return that we don't all know about, mm -hmm. that really makes what we're doing that much more immediately pressing to, to change and to address. It did for me, at least, when I was researching it. 100%. I mean, and I think that all of our listeners feel the same way. I mean, when you think about the anthropogenic element to the greenhouse effect, that we are the ones reintroducing all of this carbon into the Earth's atmosphere mm -hmm. that was buried underground for millions of years, you know, it's like, yeah, we, we did that. We're, we're the ones doing that. And um, we're the ones who could stop doing that if we decided to. Um, and, and I think, you know, that that's one of the things that while it's it is a natural risk, it's also you know, very much a man-made situation and something that we can use our intellect to address. Um, you know, one of the things yeah. that we've talked about quite a bit on Go Green Radio, just shifting to episode six in your series, um, we've talked about how antibiotics at a prophylactic level in animal feed, um, you know, with these con confined animal feeding operations that are such a big part of our food chain, how they have contributed to mutations in bacterial infections that can cause superbugs that are, you know, untreatable with the antibiotics that we currently have at our disposal. But when I listened to episode six of The End of the World, you added a whole new spin on the dangers of infectious diseases. And I would love for you to share some of the insights that you learned when you were doing the research on your biotechnology episode. Absolutely. Um, that that episode, the one on biotech, was really eye-opening for me as well because 
I think out of all the existential risks we face, the most immediate one would be from biotech. I got the impression that something really bad could happen just about any time. Um, so with biotech, the, the field itself is, is basically dedicated to studying pathogens, bacteria, viruses, bugs, basically, that can kill us in order to cure diseases caused by those bugs, right? That's the, the stated mission of the biotech field. Um, and that's great. And everyone knows it's risky and everyone takes their hat off for the people who work in that field because they're saving lives. The problem is, is there's developed this new kind of, this new style of research in the biotech field called gain of function research. And it's where you take a wild bug, a wild virus or something like that, and you either speed up evolution so that you can force new mutations in it to see what happens, um, or it's getting to the point now where uh, they will soon be able to basically create entirely new bugs um, from genetic material, bugs that have, have never existed in nature, even in an altered form. Um, and so what we're doing now in the lab is creating viruses and bacteria and pathogens that are way deadlier than anything found in nature, things that have a much higher mortality rate, that are less susceptible to treatment, that are far more contagious. And even the biotech field itself is alarmed by this new route of research. A lot of them feel like this is totally unnecessary, that you can get the same results from studying non-infectious proteins, um, that we do not need to be creating these bugs that don't exist in nature that are way deadlier than anything our immune systems are used to. Um, and then, so that in and of itself, as, as, uh, as we kind of follow the logical conclusion of that, that line of thought, we will, ha we will share the planet with bugs that don't exist in nature that are very contagious and have maybe something approaching 100% mortality rate because we've been, we've, we're creating something like that, right? That's an mm -hmm. existential risk itself. What makes it very pressing and immediate is when you take that, uh, that line of research and combine it with the biotech field's uh, really lousy track record of safety, it becomes really, really alarming. They have... Um, They've shown a lot of uh, willingness to take unnecessary risks and experimentation. And then they've also shown that they uh, are very accident prone. There's been a yep. lot of accidental releases. And thankfully, none of them have turned into a pandemic, but just basically out of luck in a lot of cases. Uh, and they, the pandemic may not have even necessarily been a deadly one, but it shows, it illustrates and demonstrates in real life that this field that is creating new bugs that don't exist in nature are also really clumsy, and we need to take greater precautions than we're taking now uh, to either shut down that line of research or direct it into more safe uh, avenues or to figure out how to pursue that line of research in a far safer way than, than the current protocols uh, allow for. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things that I really liked about that episode was you gave some specific examples about some of the, you know, research that's been done, some of the accidents or near accidents that have happened, and, and some of the potential accidents that are not far-fetched in the least. And I thought that that was mm -hmm. really fascinating. Um, you know, even when you were talking about the mousepox uh, case study, and then, you know, I, do you mind sharing that with our, our listeners? Because that just blew my mind. <laughs> yeah, that it blew my mind as well. Um, back in, I think, 2000, a couple of uh, Australian uh, virologists, I believe, um, were experimenting with coming up with a new vaccine for mice. 
uh, because Australia has a, a really significant mouse problem. Mice came along with the European settlers in the 18th century and really spread in Australia. They don't have predators, uh, or they didn't for a while, at least at first. Um, and so to, to handle this mouse problem, these researchers wanted to come up with a vaccine that sterilized mice. And in, in typical fashion, this is a very smart thing to do, you can actually use a virus to deliver genetic material to, you know, your subject, right? So mm -hmm. because that's how viruses replicate. They insert their own genetic material into the DNA of a cell, and the cell replicates that, that genetic material and produces new viruses. Well, scientists have figured out if you insert uh, genetic material into a virus's genetic material, it'll insert that into the cell and the cell will reproduce that. So we've hijacked the virus's ability to hijack a cell's ability to replicate and make new viruses, which is awesome. But yeah. in this mousepox instance, um, they used a type of mousepox as the virus to deliver this genetic material that would sterilize the mice. The problem is this weird combination that no one predicted of mousepox, the mousepox virus, along with the uh, genetic uh, code, the genes that were delivered, resulted in basically the, the mouse's immune system telling itself, just lay down, don't, don't do anything, don't react to this, and mousepox was allowed to come in and uh, just totally devastate the, the, the uh, bodies of any mouse that was exposed to this vaccine. And what was really jarring is that some of these, all of the mice were at the very least already vaccinated against mousepox. It wasn't expected that they would come down with mousepox. Some of them were genetically altered so that they couldn't possibly come down with mousepox. And yet, despite that being the study population, this vaccine, this accidental vaccine, killed every single mouse that uh, was given it. It had a 100% mortality rate, even in mice that had been genetically altered to not come down with mousepox. And it was a total accident. They were just looking to sterilize uh, to, to sterilize mice in the wild. They didn't mean to accidentally kill 100% of the mice in the study. And that really kind of gets across, like, the, 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 the randomness and surprises that lie in store when you, when you escalate the danger of viruses. And, and I'm not saying, like, we need to stop studying viruses. That would be in, in, incredibly stupid to just pretend <laughs> like they're not out there. We do need biotech. And the mo most of the biotech field is very safe and deliberate. But there are quarters in the biotech field that, that are a little reckless, that have been called cowboys by other microbiologists. And the field in general just needs better safety protocols than it has while it's studying and figuring these things out. Well, and that kind of segues into, um, you know, some of the things that you discussed in your episode on embracing catastrophe, because you talked about, like, how do we plan for technology that doesn't exist? And I loved that episode. I mean, there were so many things you you talked about in that one, but could you share with our listeners some of the concepts from, from that episode? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We have a lot of challenges ahead of us. Um, and one of the things you just, you just pointed out is we need to basically figure out what routes are the best routes to take in dealing with existential risk, say in like figuring out how to design artificial intelligence so that if it becomes intelligent beyond anything we've planned for and basically outside of our control, it still remains what's called friendly to us. Well, that's not going to just happen if a, a, a machine suddenly becomes super intelligent. Um, it, it will probably just be a super intelligent version of whatever it was before. 
and that isn't necessarily going to be friendly to us. So we have to figure out how to design friendliness into AI. Well, that takes a lot of thought and planning, and there are a lot of different routes we can take. And it's been shown that some of the routes we can take could be catastrophic to us because they actually wouldn't produce friendliness in an AI, and we might think they would and rest on our laurels, and we would be very surprised when that machine became super intelligent and it wasn't friendly to us. So we're required to think about things like developing technology in ways, so technology that doesn't necessarily exist yet, in ways that are extraordinarily clever, um, and then also look at the different routes to find any hidden dangers or traps lurking ahead. And, I mean, just saying that is exhausting. Imagine, yeah. like, doing it, right. you know? And yeah. this is the kind of thing that existential risks requires of us, to think like that, to really be that deliberate, and to also, and this is a big one, too, to really put on the brakes and say, whoa, 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 what we're doing right now isn't deliberate enough, it's not planned out enough, and we're actually doing some dangerous stuff because all of the things that, could possibly create a super intelligent AI beyond our control now exists. The pieces just haven't come together in the right way yet. So maybe we should take a step back, put a hold on everything, and then let's figure out this friendliness thing, and then we'll get back to AI, right? Um, right. That's not going to happen because there's so much money involved in developing AI. We interact with artificial intelligence constantly in our lives now, and the people who, um, who make these AI that we interact with make a lot of money from it. So we, we instead have to figure out how to speed up the friendliness thing um, mm-hmm. because we're already, we're not going to stop deploying AI in the way that we are. So there's a lot of, like, just there. I mean, it requires us just with AI to look ahead to figure out if the route we're taking is the right route. Um, and then it also requires us to basically get in between um, the moneyed interests and the, the safety and well-being of the, the planet as a whole. Um, those are two huge challenges, and those are just a couple that, that, come, that come up when you start to really look into what we need to do to mitigate existential risk. And it can become overwhelming um, very, very quickly, actually. Well, and it, it kind of goes to what we talk about on Go Green Radio a lot of times, this tension between, you know, and you, you talk about this too, techno-optimists and the gloom mm-hmm. and doom folks. I mean, you know, when we look at climate change and, you know, there's a, a scramble for everything from carbon sequestration technology to, you know, renewable energy and all these different technological solutions, like we can invent our way out of feeling the impacts of climate change, even though, you know, much of it is already being felt and parts of the world, Um, you know, and and this idea of coordinating technological responses on a global level, there's a lot of infrastructure, uh, you know, in terms of the geopolitical and regulatory infrastructure that simply doesn't exist to, on the one hand, invent our way out of climate change, (laughs) you know, and have a technological solution, and to do it in such a way that uh, it doesn't end up being you know, causing more harm than good. And I, I like the way that you address that push and pull of techno optimists and the gloom and doom folks. Um, and I don't know if there's mm-hmm. anything you want to add there, but, but I, I enjoyed that part of the conversation for sure. I did too. And it was, it was, it, I, I didn't intend for it to be as big of a component of that episode. I think that was in embracing catastrophe as well. Um, mm-hmm. And it just kept going, you know, like as I was researching and writing, it just kept getting bigger and bigger, a bigger part of the episode. Um, and I think rightfully so, because I think that a lot of very smart people tend to dismiss 
um, the, the dangers that we're facing with existential risk. Um, either that it's just a, a simple fear of science, uh, which is something that's very frequently leveled against people who worry about existential risks who warn others about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I guess it is to an extent a fear of science, but I think it's a healthy fear of science because the fear is based in science itself. You know, like there's, if you start to really look into the, the, the work of the people who are warning everyone about uh, um, existential risk, their work is based in science. It's not, you know, well, this, maybe this could happen. Maybe the LHC could open up another dimension or something like that. <laughs> it, it's not like that. It's, it's right. um, actually, it's possible that the Large Hadron Collider, under the right energies, if these, um, these, these uh, uh, theoretical physics um, ideas are correct, under these circumstances, yes, we could create microscopic black holes accidentally. And that's something everyone should be talking about. Not, you know, not, again, the LHC could open a portal to another dimension or something like that. The, the stuff that they're talking about is rooted in fact. Unfortunately, um, it it's so easily brushes up and elbows up against fringe theories that to a lot of people yeah. looking from the outside, and again, even to some very smart people on the inside, if you don't look close enough, they seem to be one in the same. But when you do start to look into it, and th- I went through this, this process myself, um, it went from, wow, this is really cool and really interesting, to it coming into focus uh, and it becoming clear, like, oh, wait, this is totally real. This is a, a very real issue that, we're, we're, <laughs> that these people are talking about. Um, and and, and it, 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 it creates a change in you. Mm-hmm. And when you, when you see it like that, you suddenly realize this is not crackpot at all. This is quite real, and it's actually quite pressing. Um, and in a lot of quarters, it takes precedent over any other issue that's coming down the pike because if we don't address these issues, we're not going to be around to address all the other issues that, that we have as well. Um, right. And that they really need to be addressed. Well, and in episode nine of uh, the End of the World series called The End, you talk about some of the things we're going to have to do to get through the next 100 to 200 years. And this huge responsibility that's on the back of our generation and the next two or three generations to figure out some very difficult stuff together so that, you know, the human race goes on merrily after this pivotal period. So I'd love for you to right. talk to us about some of the things that you discussed in the end episode. So the, uh, the, the point of the whole series, the overall arching point is that we probably have a couple of centuries to figure this out and do it right, or else we're not going to be around anymore because as the, 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 we're in what's called um, what Carl Sagan called our technological adolescence, Right where mm-hmm. we are, have grown powerful before we've grown wise. Uh, and we've developed this technology, or we're beginning to develop technology that's extraordinarily powerful and capable of things that we're not capable of before. Um, and, and we haven't figured out how to use them safely. Once we figure out how to use them safely, we'll be out of the woods. We'll be okay. And so it's predicted that we might be able to reach that point in a couple of hundred years. But in between... That's a really, really dangerous period. And if we just keep on keeping on like we are now, we probably won't survive it because there are so many existential threats coming our way from different technologies we're developing. And there are so many different people working on different ideas of them. And since it only takes one existential risk to befall humanity, that's it for humanity. It just takes one. Uh, When you put all this together, 
we're entering probably what's the, the most uh, dangerous period in the entire history of the human race, past or future. So this is really tough to get across at first. Um, and I think that's why the series was so dense, because you really have to get all of this stuff out there, all the science out there, all the different the anecdotes and the interviews and the experts. And then once you finally see it, like, oh, wait, wow, we're, I am living in what is probably the most dangerous period of the history of, of the human race, um, and I need to do something about it. Uh, that's when the whole thing begins. That's, that is the whole point of the series, is to get people to wake up to it and do something about it. And probably the biggest challenge we're going to run into is coordinating on a global level. Mm-hmm. We have shown we are terrible, terrible yep. at that. <laughs> Even when most of us want to come together, um, the, dealing with climate change has shown us what just a few, a few countries or a few moneyed interests can do to just derail everything. Basically. can absolutely um, wreck no, I, the party. I, I, and I hate to do it. We've got to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, we're going to talk sure. a whole lot more about this because uh, collaborating on a global scale, even theorizing about how, what that might look like has its own risks. And so we've got right. so much more with Josh Clark, everybody. Don't go away. We'll be back right after this break. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. 
Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. And if you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Josh Clark. He's the host of a new podcast series called The End of the World. You can find it on all the usual places. It's an iHeartMedia network out so on Audible, iTunes, Spotify, and so much more. And Josh is also um, part of an award-winning podcast that I absolutely love called Stuff You Should Know. And we're going to talk about some of those episodes in a minute. But before we took a commercial break, we were talking about um, some of the closing episodes of his uh, 10 series podcast, The End of the World. And we were talking about how we are currently, you know, a a few generations of of people with a lot of responsibility. (laughs) We are living in a pivotal Mm -hmm. time in human history. And so, Josh, I had to cut you off for a quick commercial break, but Please pick up where you left off in, in what you were reflecting on in that episode called um, End. Uh, it's episode nine. Mm-hmm. So what, I think one of the biggest challenges in, in, in dealing with existential risks is going to be coordinating on a global level. And if you just look at, you know, how we've dealt with climate change thus far, like the, the rest of the world can be on board with something. And then basically one person could come along and just derail things to a large extent. And um, that's, that's bad enough with dealing with climate change and mitigating climate change. But like I said before, if you, if you kind of paint a, a large picture of all of the stuff we have to deal with, um, existential risks kind of tend to aggregate toward the top. They are the most important ones because if we don't deal with those, we aren't going to be around to deal with other things too, right? Mm-hmm. So if we need to coordinate on a global level, and just a few people can, can derail that coordination with existential risks like that. That can't happen because if that does happen, then we all get wiped out. Like there's no more humans left after that. So it, there's, not, there's not a ton of um, hopefulness to be found in the current, the current situation with how we're dealing with climate change. Um, there is a lot. It, there's, there's a lot to be found in the history of it. Right now, it's a little scary if you say, well, this is what we're going to be doing with existential risks. We're toast. Um, but if you look back in the history of climate change and uh, environmentalism in particular, there's actually a tremendous amount of hope there. And to deal with existential risks, to, to basically say, hey, as a, as a world, as a species, we need to come together and we need to say, yes, we have these threats coming down the pike. Yes, we need this technology that we're working on, but we have to figure out how to do it safely. Let's start throwing money at it. Let's start throwing our brightest minds at it. And let's make it a truly global, species-wide project that we all come together on and work on. If we're going to do that, there's a lot of lessons to be found in environmentalism, the environmental movement. It started from just a few people kind of pointing out some real issues that, that were, had been present for a while, but nobody had looked at in the correct way necessarily. Mm-hmm. And at, at, at first, these people seemed like crackpots, or they seemed like what they were talking about was on the fringe or remote um, or absurd even in some cases. And in just a few years, just a few decades, um, people started to see like, oh, no, actually, that's, that's a real problem, and we better mm-hmm. do something about it, or else this is going to happen, right? Um, I talked to a philosopher with the Future of Humanity Institute. His name is Toby Ord, and he's working on a book right now about the history of, of existential risk. And um, he's been studying the, the environmental movement, the animal rights movement, too, and seeing kind of how they, 
how they, um, they, they relate to one another. And he basically pointed out that we, we went from no one talking about environmentalism to just about every English-speaking country in the world having a government department dedicated to protecting the environment in about a decade. In about a decade after Silent Spring came out, that was the case. We had Earth Day within less than a decade after Silent Spring came out. The world transformed the way it thinks of itself as uh, stewards of the environment. Like humans saw ourselves as stewards of the environment for the first time ever. Mm -hmm. And that happened just from a few people talking about this. And so that's the point of the series. And that's the point of all of the people who have been talking about this for, you know, the last couple decades that the series is based on, um, is to just start talking about this and to say, everyone, stop. This isn't crackpot. This isn't fringe. This is a real problem that we're running into. And we have to come together in ways that we never have before. And if we don't, we're probably not going to make it. Um, Mm -hmm. And so there is hope. There's also, you know, a lot of discouragement, all in the same example, that model of, of environmentalism and how we're dealing with climate change. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and your episodes, each one of them, as I mentioned earlier, you deliver up some some very pragmatic um, and, and very possible solutions um, that we all need to think about. And I think... You know, if if more people are listening to podcasts like yours and reading some of the books that you mentioned and some of the essays that you mentioned in your podcasts, uh, somebody's going to come up with some great ideas to make this happen. And so I I just I love the end of the world series and I love um, how stuff or stuff you should know um, that you and Chuck do. I <laughs> I mentioned to, to Josh before the show got started. I was like, can I be your Chuck today? Because <laughs> I feel like I already know you guys. I love that podcast. Um, <laughs> And it feels weird to go from existential threats to recycling. But there was an episode that you guys did last summer that um, Mm -hmm. is so apropos for Go Green Radio listeners. You did a recycling update. And even though, like, recycling's been around forever, as my kids would say, five ever, um, there's a lot that's (laughs) changed just recently. um, Yeah. Based on, you know, China's national sword policy. And actually, I'm with you. You said, good for China. And I'd love for you to kind of explain mm-hmm. what you were saying there, because um, I feel exactly the same way. I'm so relieved to hear you say that. I was worried I was just walking into a big fat trap here. <laughs> I do, <laughs> no, I do no, totally no. feel, I'm kidding. I do feel like China um, did, did a good move, actually, for itself. It, it showed its self-determination, like, China shouldn't be the world's garbage dump like it had been for years. But also in, in making this move and doing it abruptly, it's shown a light on a real problem, which is a lot of the stuff that we think we're recycling is just being thrown away. And we were just sending it over to China and they were throwing most of it away and picking out the stuff that they wanted. Well, China said, we don't want to have to sort through and pick out the stuff we want anymore. So they came up with this green sword or national sword policy to say, hey, all we want is the good stuff. We've got this great global recycling system market set up, and it, it's working okay, but there's this big problem with it. You're sending us a lot of stuff that can't be recycled, and we're being expected to throw it away. How is that fair? And so they yep. said no more. They said we just want good recyclable material. It's, that's, that was the original deal. And in doing so, a lot of people started talking about this, and I, I think a lot of people were mad at China initially, um, but if you step back and think about it, it's like, no, it, that makes total sense that, that you as a country would say, we don't want to be the world's garbage dump. But as it kind of sunk in, too, and, and as more people kind of uh, began to discuss what to do, 
normal people just said, wait, wait a minute. A lot of the stuff we're recycling is getting thrown away. What do you guys mean? And we're finding out now that, yeah, a lot of, especially like the plastics that we just toss into the recycling bins are just too dirty to be recycled. and They're being diverted to the landfill. Well, now that China's made this, this step taken on this policy, um, they're being diverted to American and North American landfills and European landfills here at home. And so that's an issue. China basically said, no more. This is your problem. Just send us the stuff that we want and we'll handle it from there. But you handle your own waste. And now this idea of waste is back in the national spotlight. It's a, a national mm-hmm. conversation, the global conversation again. And it should be. And it'll be a rough transition. Because a lot of stuff that we used to recycle or think was being recycled is just being thrown away outright. But that lends a sense of urgency to it because I think people do want to recycle. And so we'll figure out what to do about it. It's going to be a rough transition period, but we will come out better um, than I think we were going into it before China instituted this policy. I 100% agree, Josh. And actually, um, there's a woman who lives in my town um, who used to work for CCTV, which is the China state uh, TV. She was a journalist for their TV station. It's Mm kind of like CNN plus, 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 plus. I mean, it's like the biggest, (laughs) you know, uh, TV news uh, institution. And she did a story on this back in the 90s. And actually, I've had her, um, she's coming in to talk to some high school students here in my town about what she saw as a journalist back in the 90s. And actually, China was sending you know, warnings about this. In 2006, they uh, they instituted right. green fence. So it wasn't like this just came completely out of the blue. We have no one to blame but ourselves for this because we didn't mm-hmm. listen. Mm-hmm. We just kept, you know, no. contaminating our recycling loads and shipping them all the way across the Pacific Ocean. You know, I mean, that's that's not very good neighbor behavior to say the very least. Um, so, you know, I think that it's going to force us to be more mindful of what we purchase so that we know that when we discard it, if there is anything to discard, unless we go completely zero waste, that there is a place for it. There's actually a place um, besides a hole in the ground for it to go if we care about the fact that, you know, we don't want our grandchildren and great-grandchildren to have to dig through our landfills um, to find the raw materials for their, you know, way of life in the future. That would just be I mean, how, what do you think they would think of us if they had to do that? I just can't imagine how sour mm-hmm. the future generations would be on us if they had to do that. So, I mean, initially I was like, wow, you know, we have no domestic infrastructure to deal with all the things that we used to be able to send over to China. But guess what? Giddy up, America. <laughs> you know, right. the necessity is right. the mother of invention. So I think I think you're exactly right. Ultimately, we yeah. will end up being in a better, better position. Yeah, agreed. I mean, back back in the 90s when recycling first became a real thing and, um, you know, there was a national push to educate the average person to, to recycle, like the stuff that was being recycled was way better, way cleaner. Uh, mm-hmm. People just knew how to recycle. And then as it just became easier and easier, people just started using the recycling bin as their trash can. Yep. So what's crazy is there were fewer people recycling back in the 90s, but, but by weight more material was being recycled because less of it was contaminated. So more of it was being recycled. So if you can, if you can combine that same kind of 90 sense of like an educated uh, end user of a container of material with the high recycling rates we have today, we could really just blow the doors off of recycling. And we have the infrastructure there now. It's not like China said, 
no more. We're, we're, we want to shut right. down recycling over here and just completely disrupt the global market. They said, no, just stop sending us your crud. We want, yeah. like, we want like, <laughs> this, this infrastructure already exists. It just exactly. needs to be, um, it needs to be utilized properly. And if we utilize it properly, especially with educated Western consumers now saying, oh, no, I need to, to, think, to put a little more thought into this. Uh, yep. Well, I think we really will uh, see much better returns with recycling, and, and it will increase by leaps and bounds, I hope. Well said. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have much more with Josh Clark, so don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in. I am so happy we had our guest, uh, Josh Clark, on today. He is so much fun. He is, um, he's got a brand new podcast out. It just came out uh, late in 2018 um, called The End of the World with Josh Clark. And a lot of you probably have already listened to his podcast called uh, Stuff You Should Know. And you can find him on all the usual platforms, uh, iHeartMedia, Audible, iTunes, Spotify, all the huge. Um, he's everywhere. And it's been so fun having him on. We talked about um, his series, The End of the World, which deals with existential threats to humanity. Heavy topic, but actually really hopeful and really cool so check out his podcast there and then of course stuff you should know always titillating always fun he and chuck mix it up and it's a great mixture of 
awesome research and clarity. It's like one of my faves. So check it out. So Josh, you were just on tour. Um, you were in Seattle and Portland, San Francisco, Brooklyn. How'd it go? What were some of your favorite moments out there on the road? Oh, it went really well. Uh, it was kind of a mixture, actually, of Stuff You Should Know Tour and End of the World Tour. And um, Stuff You Should Know Tour, it's just, it's just like wearing a comfortable sweatshirt, you know, like getting to see all of the, the um, people who listen. Um, one of the things we couldn't figure out when we started doing this was why people would pay money to see us podcast. Because <laughs> podcasting is, it's, it's just sitting there talking, right? And that's what we do at our show. I mean, we do a little stand-up, and uh, we take some questions at the end. But, you know, the bulk of this live show is us sitting at a table podcasting. Um, mm-hmm. And we couldn't figure out, you know, the first couple of times we were like, are people going to ask for their money back? And, you know, we've done research <laughs> and talked to other podcasters who've been out on the road to see, like, you know, what do, you, what do people expect? What do they want? You know, should we, should we put together, like, a dance number or something like that? They're like, no, no, no. They just want to see you guys. And it took a couple of uh, a couple of times out before we saw like that was absolutely true. Um, and I think one of the reasons why people enjoy the live show is well, one. I mean, they get to see us like walking and talking and doing our thing. It's not just in their ears. And that, I think that's kind of a, a neat little cognitive dissonance for uh, a, a, the average podcast listener. But also, um, podcasting is typically such a, uh, a, a solitary activity. Listening to a podcast. Uh-huh. That to be in a room with other people uh, who are also listeners and fans of that same podcast that you like, that with those people you consider yourselves to yourself to be friends with, there's like a connection that runs through the audience. It's not just between us and the individual members of the audience. It's like this whole neat group connection because podcasting is, I mean, it's it's its own medium for sure. There's no sure. other medium where you feel as connected to the people. Who, who you're listening to or you're watching or you're interacting with. Um, it's just different. And so to, for that live thing to happen, it's, it's, it's a neat little connection that I think you can't really get anywhere else. And we get it too. We love going up on stage and, and, and going on tour. That is awesome. That's so cool. I'm going to catch you guys next time you're on the West Coast. That, uh, Sorry I missed you this time. Next time I'll catch you because that would be really fun. Um, you know, you guys cover such a wide range of topics on both, you know, the, the newest one, the end of the world and stuff you should know. I, you know, I want to give you a chance to just sort of step back, pontificate a little with all the knowledge and all the insights that you've gained through your research and your interviews. What do you think are some of the most important things that our listeners could do in the new year, 2019, to have the biggest impact on creating a better, healthier planet? What do you think? Man, that's a great, great, heavy question. Um, <laughs> with with the end of the world stuff, you know, there was, I was really heartened when it came out that the biggest question I got from people is like, what can I do? What can I do to help? Um, yeah. And I mean, there's some obvious ones you could go back and, and go back to school and learn uh, nanotech development or um, <laughs> artificial intelligence, that kind of stuff. Most people aren't going to do that. I'm not going to do that. So the average person, including myself, the best thing you can do is just start talking about this. Like learn as much as you can about it. Um, follow people on social who talk about this stuff. Like kind of dive into this world and and start talking to other people about it. Uh, and in doing so, it kind of taps into what I was saying earlier that it makes things that seem absurd and fringy and crackpot 
um, as obvious and important and urgent as they are. The more people start talking about it, the less weird it gets. Um, and I think that's really the, 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 the first and best thing that those of us alive can do uh, right now to kind of lay this foundation for the people to come to really study this stuff and figure out how to get us safely through it. Um, and as far as just making the world in general better, in my 42 years on the planet, um, the, the number one thing that I've come across, uh, it was a Bertrand Russell quote. He said, there are three important things in life. The first is to be kind. The second is to be kind. And the third is to be kind. And I ran across that just in the last year or so, and it's had an enormous impact on how I conduct my life. It's not like I ran around pushing people into mud puddles or anything before, but <laughs> I, I go out of my way to be more kind now that I've kind of heard it put as plainly as that. And um, that would be my life advice to anybody. Just being kind is, is just so important, you know. Everyone mm-hmm. out there is dealing with all these unseen, invisible burdens that very frequently come across as somebody's being a jerk or whatever. And yeah. so if you reciprocate kindly, um, that changes things. It changes the dynamic of that person. And, and at the very least, it doesn't add to whatever invisible burdens they're carrying. Um, and I think that is probably the easiest way to make the world a better place, the most impactful way. I love it. And, you know, I kind of have a similar thing that I tell, you know, even my kids. I say sometimes it's better to be kind than to be right. And so, you know, we're in a world where everybody's kind of fighting. Everybody's got their strong opinions and they want to get them out there. And I'm definitely not against, you know, people expressing themselves. But sometimes it it is more important to be kind than to be right. And I I love that, you know, we're kind of on the same page there. We got like a minute left, Josh, mm-hmm. and I want you to give some advice to our college students who listen. What are a couple things you wish you knew when you were 19 or 20? Give them a shout out. Oh, man. Um, so, wow. Uh, I would say that something happened, I don't know, sometime in my 30s, I would guess. I realized like, oh, wait, you really only do get one life. There's one chance at life and, you know, it's X number of decades and you hope it's a nice long life. But even still, it's not that long. And, and by the time I realized that in my like earlier mid thirties, um, I'd already spent like about a third of my life. Yeah. And so I think I, if, if I could go back and tell myself, or in this case, like tell other people who haven't reached their thirties yet, um, you know, one thing, it would be to pay attention to making that first third of your life that you just take the most for granted, um, but is also, in, in many cases, the most rewarding. Um, like, like, make the most out of it. Like, make it yeah. a really beautiful first third of your life. Um, I love that, Josh. I, It's impossible to say, like, don't take it for granted. It doesn't mean anything. But just try yeah. to remember that it's going to mean more to you later on than it does while you're in the middle of it. Thank you for that. That's beautiful. I mean, that what a what a perfect way to end a show that started with the end of the world. <laughs> I, I really <laughs> love having you on, Josh. You're an awesome guest. You have an awesome podcast. Everybody get out there and check out The End of the World with Josh Clark. And of course, Stuff You Should Know with Josh and Chuck. Love them. We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. 
Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.